The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here, and it is good to be with you. And uh, before uh, we look at God's word, I, I do just want to say a personal thank you uh, for all of y'all this past week as um, uh, y'all have been praying for us and bringing meals and cards and notes and all those various things. Uh, I'm thankful for the way that you have loved my family and, and Kat as she's had this surgery, so, um, so thank you. Um, thank you for being the body of Christ to us. Uh, we, we have greatly appreciate it, and um, the food has been very good. <laughs> uh, my kids appreciate it as well. Well, this morning, um, we are continuing our series in the book of Romans, and we'll be looking at the end of Romans chapter 3 this morning, uh, the second half of chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Romans 3. Uh, there are also Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can uh, follow along there. But we're looking at Romans 3, verses 21 through 31 this morning. Now, as I was thinking about this passage uh, this week, as I was preparing for this message, um, I was reminded of the words of a sociologist named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, has written this wonderful book, incredibly insightful, called The Righteous Mind. And in this book, Jonathan Haidt says that we have an obsession with righteousness. It is the normal human condition. He says we have an obsession with righteousness. It is the normal human condition. Now, Haidt, as far as I know, is not a Christian. Um, from his writing, it doesn't appear that he is. He doesn't write in this book or his other books or many of his articles that have been published in many magazines. It doesn't appear that he writes from a distinctively Christian perspective. And yet, when he looks at the world around us, and he looks at humanity's engagement with that world and with one another, what he sees is that what we want is righteousness. And specifically, what we want is to be righteous, or at least to be perceived as righteous. And so I started thinking about this a little bit more, and I think he's right. And I just thought about the different things that uh, get thrown out there in this day, right? Things like virtue signaling. Y'all know what virtue signaling is. Some of you do. It's simply a way of demonstrating good character and moral correctness on a particular issue. That's the nice dictionary definition for it. But ultimately, what virtue signaling is, is a way for me to tell everyone else how right I am on a particular issue. It's a way of demonstrating my own righteousness. Or think about online outrage, right? That's pretty common in our day. Whatever the issue might be, whether it's moral, social, economic, it doesn't have, it has much more to do with us looking and feeling right and being righteous than it actually does pursuing good, doesn't it? Or the last one that I thought about, standing on the right side of history. I mean, don't we all want to stand on the right side of history as though we know what that right side is going to be? as though we can look into the future and know how future generations are going to evaluate us and our day and our age, right? I mean, really, we can have no idea, right? We, we really don't know if in 10, 50, 100 years, generations to come will look upon us as being right 
or good or true. No, you see, standing on the right side of history in this claim is really more about defending our present view as righteous. You see, when I started thinking about these things, I realized height is right. We want righteousness. The problem is, is that we are looking for righteousness in all the wrong places, especially when we look to ourselves. So if you've been with us for the last four weeks as we've gone through Romans 1, 18, through Romans 3, verse 20, I hope that at the very least what you have walked away from, walked away with is, is how unrighteous we are. <laughs> I mean, that's what Paul has been doing for the last three chapters, right? He's been telling us how righteous, unrighteous we are. In fact, last week he said it explicitly, none is righteous, no, not one. So what do we do with that desire for righteousness then? Where do we look? Well, instead of looking to ourselves or to the world to find this righteousness, Paul shows us where it's found. So let's follow along, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sin. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the law that it contains. We thank you for the direction that you give us and we thank you for your spirit who leads us in the way of truth. And so we pray that your spirit would guide us now, that he would open our eyes and soften our hearts so that we would see your righteousness and we would follow you in all your ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I have to tell you, I love that the way that this passage starts. I love it. But now, it's a wonderful way to start the passage because the buts in the Bible often point us to times of great comfort into messages that soothe our soul. And I, I love that Paul begins, but now, because of what came before it, right? We already heard for basically three chapters, he's been telling us how bad we are, right? How sinful we are, right? How we have fallen short, how we're not righteous. And so maybe for the last four weeks, you've felt like I have after reading these passages, after sitting through these sermons, after walking out of a service, maybe you felt the weight of sin, and maybe you felt conviction over what God is telling us in his word about our state. And, and so it, it can kind of feel like we're walking around with that cloud just kind of following us, reminding us uh, you're not righteous. You have fallen short. I don't know, maybe it was just me that's been experiencing this. Maybe it's just a long week. No, I don't think that's what it is. I think what it is is that we do feel that weight, don't we? 
and that burden of our sin. And after three, excuse me, four weeks and three chapters of looking at it, Paul says, but now, but now, after you've heard you are not righteous, but now true righteousness is revealed. Four times in our passage, Paul speaks of righteousness. Verses 21, 22, 25, and 26. And in each occasion, he's not speaking about our righteousness. He's speaking about God's and God's righteousness that is revealed. A righteousness that is revealed in the fact that God is both just and the justifier. That's what we see in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. So we heard it. And that is the lens that I want us to look at this passage through. That as we look at the end of Romans 3, I want us to look at it through the lens of God's righteousness being revealed in his justice and in him being the justifier. So how do we see God the just in his righteousness? Well, we see it in the fact that God doesn't ignore sin. This is the case that's been developing and being building for the last four weeks. God sees our sin. He knows our transgression. He doesn't ignore it. But then in verse 25, we have this little phrase. I don't know if you picked up on it, but it says that God passed over former sins. So at first glance, at first hearing, it might sound or look like what Paul's saying is, yes, yes, your, your sin is great. Yes, yes, you have fallen short. Yes, yes, you have transgressed God's law, but, but he just kind of ignores it. He passed over former sins. I mean, doesn't it kind of sound that way? Like he doesn't pay attention to it anymore. That God puts his head in the sand and it's, it's sort of like a see no evil, hear no evil sort of thing. I mean, is that what God's doing? Well, from our perspective, sometimes it can feel that way, can't it? I mean, not, not with our sin, but with the sins of others. Doesn't it sometimes feel like God's just kind of ignoring it, passing over it, putting it aside? I mean, think about the Psalms. The Psalms are full of questions and, and even what seems to be accusations that God is ignoring sin, that he's passing over it, that he's forgetting about it. I mean, think of Psalm 73. Right? The psalmist says, my foot almost stumbled, right? My foot almost stumbled. And why? Because he looked at the evil. He looked at the wicked. And it appears they have no trouble. They prosper. In fact, the evil prosper because of their evil. And, and the, there are no consequences for their sin. The psalmist is saying it, it looks like God just ignores it. And we feel that, don't we? I mean, doesn't it seem like liars are believed as though they are truthful? That the hateful gain followings and that the corrupt seem to keep acquiring more and more wealth. So has God ignored the sin of the world? Has, has he put his head in the sand? Is that what Paul means when he says he passed over former sins? I mean, how is that just? Well, of course, the answer is that no, God has not ignored sin. You see, passing over former sins doesn't mean that God tolerates sins, 
No, what we must understand is that God's patience and his forbearance isn't ignoring sin. No, God's passing over former sins means that God is patient to punish sin. And he doesn't ignore it and that he will punish it at the right time and in the right way. And what is the right way? Well, it's Jesus. He's the one who deals with sin. Look at verse 25. Paul says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you hear what Paul is saying. He's saying that that God doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't tolerate sin. He deals with sin, and the way in which he deals with it is in the cross. That Christ is put forward as the propitiation for our sin. Now, that word propitiation is a big theological word. It simply means to remove or appease wrath. Now, uh, there are probably many of our, our neighbors, our friends, maybe our coworkers, maybe even some of us here, that uh, we don't like to think about that attribute of God. That God uh, is angry at sin. That he is righteously indignant that he may bring wrath. No, we like to think of God as love, right? And merciful and gracious and kind and patient and forbearing. And he is all those things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Right? I mean, First uh, John says God is love. And so if you want to know what love looks like, you look to God. If you want to know what mercy and grace and kindness and patience is, you look to God because that's what he is. He is all of those things and he is just. Which means he doesn't ignore sin, but he must punish sin. That He is angry at sin and that his wrath comes upon it. But thanks be to God that Christ is the propitiation for our sin. That Christ takes our sin upon himself. That's what that means. It means that Christ stood in our place and God's wrath and his righteous indignation and his justice falls not on me who deserves it or you who deserves it, but on Christ. He stands in our place. God doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. No, Jesus takes that sin upon himself. You see, God's righteous justice is demonstrated in the cross. It's revealed in the cross. Because in the cross, he doesn't ignore or tolerate sin. No, instead, Jesus deals with our sin. And he deals with it by bearing it in his very body. You see, the cross shows God's justice. But the cross doesn't just show God's righteous justice. It also shows his righteous justifying. That's the other part of verse 26. He might be the just and the justifier. You see, through Jesus' work on the cross, we see God's justice, but we also find that we are justified. It's what verse 22 says, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
You see, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, by bearing God's justice for our sins, it doesn't move us into a place of, of amorality or a state of neutrality. No, Jesus takes those who were once rebels, who were opposed to God, and he now makes us righteous. You see, for those who are trusting in Christ, who are looking to him in faith, we stand before God now as innocent, as guiltless, as righteous. And we do so not by our own works, but by obedience to, or by obedience to the law. No, no, look what Paul says in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Paul is telling us again, again he's telling us, that our justification does not come through obedience because we haven't been obedient. And our justification doesn't come through works of the law because we have fallen short. He tells us again. I say again because this is what Paul has been telling us for like three full chapters now, right? He's been telling us it again and again and again. And maybe at this point we're starting to wonder like, Paul, why do you keep harping on this? Like, I think the horse is dead. You can stop beating it. Right? I mean, maybe you feel that a little bit. Right? He's banging the drum. He's like a broken record. Whatever other uh, colloquialism you want to throw out to describe it. But, but it feels like he's just saying it again and again and again. And, and it can feel like Paul's just filling space. Or maybe he's repeating himself because he likes the sound of his voice, but that's not what he's doing. You see, Paul is repeating that our salvation, our justification, is not by any works of us because we need reminding of this. Because we so easily start to think and act as though we are justified by our works. Now, we would never say, if, if you're a Christian, you've grown up in the church, you've been around here for a little while, you know not to say those things, but, but we act that way, don't we? Well, of course God loves me. Look at my church attendance. <laughs> right? Of course God loves me. Look at my moral righteousness. Right? Or, or maybe we think about it in other ways. Maybe it's not that explicit. Maybe, maybe it's that we find our righteousness in how we vote. Or how we didn't vote. Or in how we parent or in what denomination we're a part of, or what social movement we're advocating for. And in all these ways, in all these things, we are seeking to demonstrate and boast how righteous we are. But Paul says in verse 24 that the righteousness that comes to us, the justification that comes to us, is by grace. And the grace of God is a gift. It's a gift. Now, sometimes we talk about God's grace as unmerited favor. It's a great definition. But, but a fuller definition of God's grace is demerited favor. Demerited favor. So what does demerited favor look like? Well, I want you to imagine a scene. You have a, a teenage driver in your house. And this teenage driver has gone through all the, all the lessons, has taken all the classes, has passed everything, has accomplished their hours, and, and now the day has come when they get to start driving all by themselves, right? Mom and dad aren't looking over their shoulder anymore, and, and maybe a week, a month, maybe two months go by, and you get that call 
The call that you have been dreading ever since they started driving, they've wrecked the car. Okay, so you drive over to the scene of the accident, right? And, and the, your child, they're, they're perfectly fine. There's not a scratch, not a bump. Nothing is wrong with them, but the car is destroyed. I mean, it's ruined, right? Like passerbys on 419, they're like stopping and getting out because they've never seen so much destruction, okay? But your child's fine, so you're breathing. You know, we're good. It's just a car. And it was your child's fault. Okay, it's not that some little boy was playing in the road. It's not a dog ran out, then they swerved. It's that they were talking on the phone or they weren't paying attention or the music was too loud or whatever. It's all their fault, okay? So you have this image in your mind. You figured it out. You go home that night. Emotions have calmed. You're relaxed. You've talked to the insurance company. Things are progressing. And that same child comes to you an hour or two after the accident and says, hey, mom, my friends are getting together over at so-and-so's house. Can I borrow your car? <laughs> okay. So, so, so what have they earned? What have they merited by that day? Well, what they've earned, what they have merited is that laugh, right? Like, are you out of your mind? Can you borrow my car? There is no way, right? What they have earned, what they have merited is to walk to their friend's house. That's what they've earned. But imagine mom says, of course you can. Here are the keys. Drive safe. I love you. There, would, there was nothing that that child did to deserve that kind of favor. In fact, everything that child did meant that she, should, she or he, <laughs> I have one that's about to drive, <laughs> He or she, actually what they did by their actions was earn the very opposite of that favor. And yet, favor was given. Grace was shown. And y'all, that is the grace of Jesus' demerited favor to us. You see, the truth is, is we are that child that has wrecked the car but instead of the car, we have wrecked our lives with sin. And we are deserving none of God's grace, none of his favor, none of his mercy, and yet he gives it. That is the gospel. Y'all, that is God's grace. That is the gift of the gospel. This gift of grace it is a gift when what has been earned is actually the very opposite of what has been given. And that's what Jesus has done. What we have earned is his wrath and what we deserve is his displeasure. We have demerited his favor and yet he shows us grace again. And why? Because it's a gift. We didn't earn it. We get it simply because Christ is generous and because he is kind See, if it's no longer a gift, then we can earn it, but we can't. A gift is received, and it's received by faith. That's what Paul tells us. Eight times in our passage, Paul speaks of faith. It's the most frequently repeated word in the entire passage. 
And faith's relation to justification is summarized in verse 28. One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So don't hear that as saying faith is just some spiritual work now, right? We're okay with, we don't save ourselves by works, but, but there's got to be like spiritual works that we do to merit God's favor. And maybe faith is one. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on. Faith isn't just some spiritual work that we do. No, instead, what faith is, is the manner in which we receive salvation, not the reason for our salvation. It's the instrument of salvation, not the cause of it. God is the source of our salvation, and he is the cause of it. We are justified by grace, by grace through faith. And when we realize this, this is going to mean two things in our lives. It's going to mean we are going to be a boasting people. We are going to be boastful, but we are not going to boast in ourselves. No, Paul says it's excluded. We're going to boast in Christ. You see, that's the implication. When he says our boasting is excluded, the implication is that we don't boast in ourselves, or as Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We don't boast in ourselves because we have nothing to boast of. Paul spent three chapters convincing, it, convincing us of it. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in God's grace, in his mercy, in his kindness. We boast in Christ, in his righteousness, so that we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We boast in his righteousness, not ours. We boast not in our ability to justify ourselves, but in his. But we're not just a boastful people. We're also going to be an obedient people. That's what Paul tells us at the very end. Did you see the last verse of our passage? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what Paul's saying is, is because you have been saved by faith, it, grace by faith, it doesn't mean that you're done with the law. Like we're just a, a faith people and, and the law, it doesn't matter. We just put it aside. We ignore it. No. The people of faith, the people of grace, the people who boast in Christ's death and resurrection, we are a people who love the law. And seek to obey the law, not to justify ourselves, but in response to our justification. And y'all, that is important. That distinction is vitally significant because it's so easy for us to think that our obedience leads to our justification. It is in response to it. Because friends, when we see God's justice and his justification coming together at the cross, how can we not want to obey Christ? When we know what he has done on our behalf, that he has showered us with grace and mercy, how can we not boast in what he has done? We deserve God's justice, and instead we're justified by grace. And so, friends, let us obey the law. Let us see it as beautiful and good, as sweet as honey, as the psalmist says. And let us boast in Christ's righteousness, because it is by his righteousness that we have been justified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you've turned us away from our sin, and by your grace, which is a gift, you have justified us. And so we pray that we would make much of Jesus, that we would boast of him, that we would declare 
his salvation and his gracious work and that we would seek to obey you and follow you in all the ways that you have called us to. And so, Lord, build our faith, fix our eyes on Jesus, and let us behold the grace that he gives. And we pray all this in Christ's name and God's people said together, Amen. Amen.